Happy Father's Day to all of you to whom that applies. And uh, what a marvelous Father's Day it was for the Jennings family. I'm watching uh, Dad Jennings baptize three of his children today. Um, we're going to talk about baptism a little bit today. But let's begin with prayer. Lord, we are so grateful to you for your kindness to us. You've once again given us opportunity to come meet together in freedom to declare the excellencies of Christ, and declare a gospel and a word from your book that is absolutely contrary to the thinking of the world. It is a message that all over the world gets Christians into serious trouble. And not so much here, but maybe it will in the future. Lord, we need your grace now as we think about these things. I pray that you would give us insight into your word and you would help us to comprehend your calling on the life of this church. We want Christ to be magnified and glorified in this hour and in all of our ministry as a church family. And so we ask, Father, would you come, would you send your spirit, and may your Spirit, find hearts that are docile to your word and to your moving in them. Lord, we need this grace, and so we ask you for it in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. On June 14th, 2015, a remarkable church was born in Mansfield, Texas. On the day of her birth, she was nearly 50 people strong and was full of life and the power of the Spirit of God on her to make her healthy and strong. Her name is Living Hope Bible Church. And on this very Sunday, she is four years old, which came to me while I was, I think, in Louisville this week as uh, where we went, because my son Calvin got married. <laughs> Praise the Lord, that happened. It's great, three down, four to go. Um, we have been planning this day for some time, but it has been a moving target. And we finally settled on a date today. And it wasn't until a couple of weeks later that I realized this day is the anniversary or the birthday of... Living Hope Bible Church, our first church plant. Isn't that a, a happy providence? Isn't that a wonderful gift from the Lord? And I say she's a remarkable church because she is the first successful church plant Calvary Bible Church has born. We might say in an ecclesiological sense that she is Calvary's firstborn. And identifying her with the term first is strategic because our prayer is that Living Hope will not be the last church plant, but that she is the first of several churches that will be planted by this church, the mother church, as it were. It just seems more appropriate to say father church, but that sounds weird as well. <laughs> Today, I, I want to talk to you about church planting, and I'll tell you up front that this is going to largely be a topical message rather than a verse-by-verse, -verse, the kind of verse-by-verse -verse exposition that we're accustomed to around here. Next week, Lord willing, we will be back into 2 Timothy. I can't wait. Hope you're excited about that as well. But this is important to the life of our church. 
And so the elders have asked me to walk through this with you today. So today I want to talk to you about church planting. If you have been attending Calvary Bible Church for any length of time, then you know that we have been, and it is our ambition in the future to be a church planting church. We have successfully planted one church, and it's our intention to plant more. But some of you may wonder, why? Why? Why plant churches? I mean, why should we intentionally subject ourselves to the difficult years-long preparation and sacrifice that would only culminate eventually in the separation of dear friends and have their relationships substantially changed, even in some sense lessened as a result? Why should we do this? And that's a great question. And I hope by the time we're done today, you will be convinced, as I am, why we should do this. I want to offer several explanations for why the elders of Calvary Bible Church believe that God is calling us to be a church-planting church and has been calling us to be a church-planting church all along. I will tell you that there is a practical reason, and that is we are landlocked here. And so we had to make a choice. Do we move? Do we find another facility? Do we purchase? Do we build? We looked into all of that for a long period of time and decided, no, we stay. Our original solution to the growth problem, <laughs> and, I, and I do think sometimes it's a problem because fellowship is more difficult and shepherding is way more difficult as the numbers multiply. I know that's, that's not your typical way of looking at church growth, um, but it is the way we look at it. We just want to be faithful shepherds, and, and less is more. And so what do we do as a growing church? Our original response to this was, uh, let's expand the chapel, which we did, which is why there are three rows of red chairs up here on either side. We expanded the chapel to give us about 45 more seats. Not much, but enough to kind of hold us over for at least a few months. We eventually went to two services, and we held on to that for years. Uh, some of you know nothing of that dispensation in, in, I almost said Israel's history, but in, in Calvary's history. Um, but it was a hardship on the church. The day after, or the, the Sunday after we planted Living Hope Bible Church, I announced we were going back to one service. And it was a hallelujah. Somebody just said hallelujah. And that was the closest thing to a standing ovation that has ever happened <laughs> in this church. And I, I'm not meaning to be funny here. I'm just wanting to give you the history of this. We don't want to go back to two services. Uh, we might have to. So those of you who just said no, uh, <laughs> but we really don't want to go back to two services. We're already kind of divided because we have this room and we have that room. And you know that room down the hall. They're on the other side of the playground or the tracks or something. Uh, but they're part of us. We just don't see them. And that's hard on us as elders. Um, it's, it's hard to, to worship like this and be divided. So any kind of division of people, it just it causes us to struggle. We have an elder who's down there every week trying to shepherd and minister. We rotate, except me. I, I, I got to be here. Um, I just want you to sense the struggle a little bit. 
that we have. And it's a good thing. It's a good struggle. God brings more and more people here. Fort Worth is growing like crazy. And that could only mean that that God's people and those who will come to know Jesus and become part of God's people will want to become a part of Calvary Bible Church, which means more growth. So what do we do? Do we build a bigger building? And our answer to that was no. We don't want to be a big church. We think there's a better way. And we think the better way, it's not only a biblical way, but it is the best way to make and maintain a healthy and ever-increasing in strength kind of church. And so I have a, a lot to cover here this morning to convince you of these things. Most of you are already convinced, perhaps. But here's the first thing I want us to consider. Number one, let, let's get really down to basics here. Church planting and the meaning of life. Church planting and the meaning of life. In the world today, there is so much confusion about the meaning of life. And I, you, you know the scenarios. I don't need to rehearse them. But Christians know what life is about because God has told us and we have experienced it ourselves. We understand. We get why God created us. It wasn't that God was lonely and needed companionship. It wasn't that he needed anything. He was completely and fully and eternally satisfied within himself. No, the reason he created man was to go public with his glory. He wanted to share himself for the good of others that he might be glorified in them. And so for this reason, we're told in Genesis 1 that God created man in his own image which means we exist to image forth the glory of God in the world. People should look at us the way we live, the way we speak, the way we present ourselves and see something of the glory of God in us. We were created to fill the earth with the glory of God as the waters cover the seas. And that means in part that, that we have children and we train them to love Jesus. Of course, God has to do that. But parents, you have your part as well. And for New Testament believers, we further understand that God the Father is most interested in the glory of his Son. His Son who is Jesus Christ. So, we exist to live in such a way that sets his glory on display in the world. And there is a very specific way we at Calvary Bible Church like to say this. And we haven't said it together in a long time. It's printed somewhere in the bulletin. I meant to find it so I could point you to it. Keith, you know where it is immediately? On the back. And so turn to the back of your bulletin. We're going to say this together. You ready? By the way, while you're turning there, let me just welcome the Helms family, all of you Helms and former Helms, and Helms in here and Helms down the hall. Doug Helms was one of the early elders of Calvary Bible Church. Him and Selah had such influence here on this church. It was, it was like a revitalization, the closest thing to a church plant um, after we came in 1994. So you're there in the bulletin, and so let's say it together. Here's, here's why God created us. We exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things to the glory of God in the joy of all peoples. Now let me say it. We 
exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things. That means in sickness and in health and tragedy and blessing, in war and in peace. In all things, we exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ to the glory of God in the joy of all peoples. And and that last part means we are calling sinners everywhere to the joy of knowing Jesus Christ and thereby know why they exist and then to live out the purpose of that existence, namely to magnify the glory of Jesus. If God wanted to share with man the greatest good, the most satisfying love, if he wanted to share with man the deepest joy humans can experience, then he would freely give them the greatest thing there is to give, namely himself. And he has in the person of Jesus Christ. This, beloved, is the foundation upon which everything else is built. All reality, all reality is built on this. You can either live consistent with that reality or inconsistent with reality, that reality, but it is reality. We live in the presence of God. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence, right? Psalm 139. If I go into the heavens, you're there. If I, if I make my bed and Sheol, you were there. We live in the atmosphere of God. And, and if you're an unbeliever, that should be a terrifying thing. But if you're a child of God, it's the most precious thing in all the world. To understand why Calvary Bible Church is committed to church planting, we need to to understand that that this is connected to our purpose for existence, the meaning of life. We live because God gave us life, and he gave us life to magnify the glory of Jesus. Secondly, let's talk about church planting in the Great Commission. I hope this will be enlightening to you as it was for me in my study in the past week or so. Turn in your Bible, if you will, to Matthew 16. Matthew 16 is a critical passage for Christians, sometimes debated. There's there's a clear division between the Roman Catholic understanding of this text and Protestant understanding of this text. We are a Protestant church, in case you didn't know that. Uh, We protest, this is what that means, we protest the Catholic view of the gospel. And, but this is, this is a significant passage related to church planting. Let's, let's just focus on that. I won't try to expound everything in this text. It would take weeks. And Matthew 16, beginning with verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, who, by the way, at this point was dead. And others say Elijah who was also dead. And some say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So people were saying, somebody significant from the past has risen from the dead, and that's Jesus. 
And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? This is, this is the ultimate question in the universe. And Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and I tell you, you are Peter, whose name means little stone. And on this rock, different word here, this large boulder, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I think this large rock, my understanding of it, is that he is referring to what Peter just proclaimed. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Listen, friends, the reason our mission in the world finds its center in the church is because Jesus' mission in the world was centered in the church. Notice what he says. I will build my church. I mean, what would be the first thing you would say if somebody said to you, you are the Christ, and it were true, right? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the most magnificent thing that has ever been said about anyone. What would you say in follow-up to that? You would say something that is equally magnificent. And it is this. I will build my church. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I will build my church. If I am the Christ, the sovereign king, then I am building my kingdom. I will build my church. The church is central to what Jesus is doing in the world. He didn't say, I hope to build my church. He didn't say, I wish you guys would do something to build my church. No, he said, I will build my church. I was so struck by this this week. We were looking at a new desk for my new office in the new office building, and I saw a space there where I could write something, you know, or have a, have a plaque or a sign put up, and I thought, you know, if I were to do that, what would I put there? And I thought, I'm going to put this text. I will build my church. And then I thought somebody would walk in and see me sitting behind the desk. <laughs> and notice that the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Hades does not mean hell. It means death. It means the grave. Grave. Now, what was Jesus about to do? He was about to die. Not even the gates of Hades, not even, you know, you throw them in the tomb and you lock the door, you throw the gate up, you roll the stone in front of it. Jesus is saying, I will build my church and not even death can keep me from accomplishing that. Not my death and not the death of 10,000 Christian mar martyrs, 10 million Christian martyrs. I will build my church, and nothing can keep me from doing so because I have authority over everything, even my own death. 
No one takes my life from me. I lay it down. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. Can I just make this crystal, crystal clear? This may be shocking to those of you who have not heard this before, but I'm going to lay it out in one sentence. You need to understand the only thing Jesus is doing in the world is building his church. Everything else going on are merely props on the stage. They are instruments in the Lord's hand to build his church. Now, this sets the stage for what follows of, in Christ's great commission. So you're in Matthew 16. Flip over to Matthew 28. This is at the end of this gospel. Uh, Jesus has already died. He's already risen. Um, several weeks have gone by, and Jesus is meeting on the mountain with those who have come. Jesus appears to them and he says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. These were Jesus' final words. And final words, perhaps, are at least viewed as the most significant words. At least words that one should pay attention to. Especially in a case like this, where Jesus' leaving is perfectly timed by him, and he has plenty of time, all eternity, to decide what are, the, what are the last words, his final words to his disciples, what will they be? And this is what he said. All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I, who have all authority in heaven and on earth, will be with you even to the end of the age. These words, these final words of Jesus, I would submit to you, these final words need to be our first concern as a church. This is the prime directive, as it were, of the Christian life, the church's life. The term image bearers reveals who we are. The term disciple makers reveals what we do. To make disciples means that we help people become followers of Christ. We do this first by the ministry of the gospel. We tell people the gospel. We call all men everywhere to repent and believe. We call all men and women and children everywhere to believe in Jesus. And then when they do believe in Jesus by God's grace, we help them grow to maturity in Christ because he is our standard. The world has no idea what normal is. That's why there's such confusion in the world. But we do. We have a model of what is normal. And that model has a name, Jesus. You want to be normal? Be like Jesus. You want to be the normal human being? Be like Jesus in all of your character. In the way you think, in the way you live. 
This is what disciple-making is about. It's helping people become more and more like Jesus. But notice two essential aspects of disciple-making that we often overlook when we talk about the Great Commission, namely that of teach and baptize. We saw baptism this morning, right? This is interesting, and honestly, I just learned it this past week when I heard uh, Pastor Tom Pennington make this important observation, and I will never forget it, and I hope you'll never forget it. He pointed out something that is so obvious it's, it's easy to miss. He said that the ministry of teaching and the practice of baptizing, according to the New Testament, are specific God-ordained duties of the church. The church. It is safe to infer, therefore, that what Jesus had in mind was that disciple-making would not merely be something individual Christians do on their own, but rather what Christians do in connection with their local church. Listen, you'll never find a Christian in the New Testament who is disconnected from a church. All of them were part of the church. All of them were a part of a specific church or they were ministering from one specific church to another church. But it was all based in the local church. The point I'm trying to make here is that church planting is not an optional side ministry for local congregations. It is Jesus' main strategy for fulfilling the Great Commission. We tell people the gospel. We call them to repent and believe. And when they do, we teach them. We baptize them and spend the rest of their lives teaching them and teaching one another what it means to live like Christ. So you see, we're committed to planting churches because Jesus is building his church that's what the Great Commission is all about. Jesus is using our ministry of his gospel to build his church. And what could be more natural than for the church to send men and women and whole families out to plant new churches, new gospel? I'm not talking about buildings. And I'm not talking about some religiosity. I mean, small bodies of Christ that are devoted to the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture who are calling people to come to Christ and then discipling them. Jesus is building the church by planting churches. And that leads to a third thought to consider, number three, church planting and the strategy of Paul. We could say church planting and the strategy of, of the apostles and Paul. If this really is the Lord's strategy for making disciples of all nations, then we would expect to see it in the ministry of Jesus' disciples and especially in the ministry of Paul. And that's exactly what we discover when we read the book of Acts. So let's flip over to the book of Acts. We can start in chapter 2, and I'm just get your finger ready because you're going to be flipping pages. In Acts chapter 2, we read that on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came with power. Peter preaches a sermon, and what happens? Something that has never, ever happened. Talk about a church growth problem. Talk about an administrative nightmare. You preach, and 3,000 people join your church. We'd have to go to two services. 
3,000 people are baptized. And you know what happens? The first church, the church of Jerusalem, is formed in a formal way. As you pay attention to the details, you discover that the church not only had apostles, they also established as the leadership of that church elders. Because that's the way it was going to be in all the other churches. And as the church continues to grow, a man by the name of Saul begins to severely persecute all of the Jews who have themselves become followers of Jesus. In fact, it is Saul who instigated the stoning of Stephen. He was leading the persecution in Acts 7. If you want to remember where that is, just remember, 7, heaven. It's when, Tim, um, it's when Stephen goes to heaven. And Saul of Tarsus, who will become Paul, inst- I, I think instigated the whole thing. That was his job, was to track down uh, Jewish Christians, to imprison them, to call them to recant, to beat them and to kill them if necessary. And when the people, after Stephen's stoning, the people who are are new believers in this new church, they went, "Uh uh-oh, what about my children? What about my wife? I mean, I'm wrestling with whether I'm willing to die for Jesus, but I'm, I'm not wrestling with whether I can allow my children to be killed if possible. We're out. We're out of here. We're going to take our faith, and we're, we're going to run. And sometimes it's appropriate to run. Sometimes it's appropriate to stay. And so what happens? The church scatters. You can see the providential hand of God here. He said, go into all the world, and they weren't willing to go. It was kumbaya time <laughs> until Saul of Tarsus came. And so they scattered. Acts chapter 8, verse 1, tells us the great persecution began and everyone scattered except for the apostles, stayed there at the church of Jerusalem. And those who scattered preached the gospel wherever they went. So they didn't abandon the gospel. They just ran and took the gospel with them. And everywhere they scattered, they proclaimed the gospel. Philip is the first who sees a large group of people. In this case, Samaritans come to faith in Christ And whenever a group of Christians gathered together, the apostles would send a delegation from Jerusalem to check it out, to see if it was real. And out of that, churches began to be born and churches began to multiply. Acts chapter 9. You want to remember where Paul meets, or Saul meets Jesus? Think nine shine. This is where Saul of Tarsus meets the shining one, the glorious one. It's so glorious that it blinded Paul. Saul. So Acts 9, Saul himself meets and finds himself arrested by the resurrected Jesus. He who was arresting others in persecution is arrested by the one he is persecuting. And on that day, as he fell on his face blind before the Lord on the Damascus road, he became a Christian. And he joined the very people whom he had been persecuting. And you know what? That was hard on them. Well, what's he doing here? It'd be like in, in Russia, it'd be like having a member of the KGB in your congregation, which still happens today, by the way. Again, we read in Acts 9, we see the church develop even further. 
and its growth continues to multiply. Turn to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. And I'm going to read an extended section here. Acts chapter 11, beginning with verse 19. So kind of give you some details about what's happening behind the scenes. This is Acts 11, beginning with verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. So that wasn't a guess on my part. The, the scriptures clearly say everyone scattered because of Stephen's martyrdom. And persecution that arose over Stephen traveled far as Phoenicia and Cyprus, which is an island, and Antioch, which is a really big city, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So these were Jewish people going to the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus, which was a Gentile land, and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. The, uh, Hellenists, that's, that's a, a term. You think Helen of Troy, these are Greeks, right? When they went into a country and they, they took over, that's why every, everybody spoke Greek. They call that the Hellenization of the territory or that part of the world. The Hellenists, or the Greeks, also they preached to, preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them. So now they're preaching the Gentiles, and people are responding. And Luke is telling us, here's what we discovered, that was the hand of the Lord. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the report of this came to the ear of the church in Jerusalem. And so, as I said, the pattern was, they hear that a group of people believe, and they're grouping up together because they love one another now. They'd send a delegation from Jerusalem to check it out, make sure it was square, make sure it was right, make sure they believed the right things. And so a delegation from Jerusalem went out, and, and they sent Barnabas and, to Antioch. They sent, I guess the whole delegation consisted of one man at this point, Barnabas. <laughs> and when he came and saw the grace of God, the saving grace of God had changed these Gentile people. And he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfastness of purpose. For he was a good man, this Barnabas, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And the great many people were added to the Lord. So, so let, me, let me squeeze something in between the lines here. It'll make sense as soon as I read it. Barnabas gets thinking, we got all these people, what do they need? We got to teach them. These are Gentiles. Where do we begin? How do we teach all of these people? They're not Jewish. They don't, they don't have the law of God. I mean, at least when they went to the Jews and churches began, they had a whole foundation of the Old Testament. They were even teaching the Old Testament. They had to kind of relearn it like the apostles did, but they were well on their way. These Gentiles, they got to start from scratch. How are we going to do that? How do we disciple them? How do we train them? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? I know what I'm going to do. Where is Saul? By that point, everybody knew Saul was in um, tar um, somewhere. <laughs> and he'd been there for 14 years. He's studying, growing, learning, making tents. And everybody knows this, this man was a Pharisee of Pharisees and a great teacher. Now he's a believer and has been one for more than a decade, almost a decade and a half. And Barnabas says, I've got to find Saul. 
I don't know if, I don't know if the church is ready for this, but who cares? I've got to find Saul because he can help. So, verse 25, Barnabas went to Tarsus. There's the answer to my question, Tarsus. <laughs> Just read the book. Have you not read? Okay. <laughs> so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the, what's the next word? The church. Oh, there's a church in Antioch now. And taught a great multitude of people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called what? Christians. This church in Antioch was the first group of people to be called little Christs. And, and it was a pejorative, negative, derogatory statement, and they loved it. I think. Um, the city of Antioch in present-day Turkey, very large city. Many who heard the gospel believed. Saul comes in and teaches. In Acts 13, we find a direct mention of the church of Antioch. Look at chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Now there were in the church at Antioch. So there it is. The church at Antioch. There were, listen, watch how, listen to how the Lord gifted this church. It's, this is a, a mix of Jews and Gentiles in this church, no doubt. Now there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers. And Barnabas, Simon, who was called Niger, Lucius, of Cyrene, uh, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. These are significant people. And Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. To do what? To do what? To fulfill the Great Commission. To proclaim the gospel, first to the Jews, but also to the Greeks. And everywhere people responded, they built a church. And I don't mean a church building. Again and again, uh, the apostles mentioned, especially Paul, the church that meets in so-and-so's house, the church that meets in so-and-so's house, the church that meets in so-and-so's house. This is the beginning of Paul's missionary journeys. He had three of them that we know of. And what did Saul and Barnabas do as they traveled? Well, they preached the gospel to the synagogues. And groups of people believed, and they formed churches. Later, when they went back to visit all the churches on the second missionary journey, you know what they did? They established elders in every church. That's why we have elders at Calvary Bible Church, because of this text. Well, what I want you to see here is that Paul understood the Great Commission better than we. He understood that making disciples involved preaching the gospel, yes, but it also involved planting churches everywhere he could. Everywhere he could. Now, I hope by this time you're convinced that 
God wants churches to plant churches whenever possible. But I want us to consider yet another step, another thought. This is number four, church planting in the resurrection. Church planting in the resurrection. Now, so turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're, we're continuing to go to the right here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The context of this verse is, uh, verse 19, is um, Paul's defending the resurrection. There were people who had probably been influenced by the Sadducees who believed that there is no such thing as resurrection. When a human dies, they would teach, it's over. His life story is done. There's nothing to look forward to. You just expire like an old battery and get thrown on the ash heap of the cosmos. Paul knew better. And it was essential to the gospel that they understood this. The resurrection was not merely something you could argue about and, and, and rewrite or reimagine that doctrine. He knew how important the resurrection is to the gospel, and so he writes, beginning with verse 12 of chapter 15. There's so much here, I'm, I'm just jumping to verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, by the way, that's what the disciples, the, the apostles proclaimed, that Jesus is risen from the dead. That's the essential of the gospel. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is vain. And your faith, is vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God when we testify about God that he raised Christ from the dead whom he did not raise if the dead are not raised. You see the conundrum. This is serious. This is so many implications to say there is no resurrection. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins then those who have fallen asleep, that is, died in Christ, have perished. If Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, what? Well, just push the pause button for a second. I just want you to get a feel for what Paul is saying here. His argument has several points. If there's no resurrection and Christ isn't raised, our preaching is worthless, your faith is worthless. And those who died believing in Christ are just dead. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then there's, there's no sense in being a Christian. Stop meeting together. You know, turn the church, into a, church building into a bakery or a pub, which is what's happening all over the world. And here he adds in verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all men, we are of all people most to be pitied. He's saying, pity me, I'm a fool if the resurrection isn't real. Why did Paul say this? Well, listen, Paul's life just didn't make any sense if there's no resurrection, if there's nothing to look forward to after death, if there's no heaven, no eternal reward, no eternal life with God, then living like he lived was stupid. 
It was just dumb. It was, it was worse than dumb. It was insane. It was a, pic, a picture of complete insanity. Paul, why were you doing this? But look at the next verse, starting with verse 20. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Listen, I mean, all eyes up here for a second. If there is no resurrection, Paul's life didn't make any sense. Can I ask you a question? Is there any aspect of your life and my life that makes absolutely no sense if you extract the resurrection, if the resurrection is false? If the resurrection is not real, is there some part of your life then that doesn't make any sense at all? Because the only reason you're doing it is because one day, you, you believe one day you will be raised. You will see Jesus face to face. Your eternal life will be fully realized in the presence of the Savior. Is there any part of your life that absolutely does not make sense if that's not true? Or are we just floating with the culture and being nice to people and raising good kids and taking sweet vacations? My answer to that question is, well, you answer it for yourself. But as printed on the top of your notes, here's the way I worded this question for us this morning. Is there anything that Calvary Bible Church does that makes absolutely no sense apart from the resurrection? My answer to this question is, yes, we plant churches. It's not the only thing that doesn't make sense apart from resurrection. Listen, our meeting together, our taking up our Sunday morning and meeting together to hear somebody stand in the pulpit and say words from a book doesn't make any sense if there's no resurrection. But what I want you to hear this morning is, apart from the resurrection, church planning makes no sense at all. We are actually encouraging, consider this, we are actually encouraging 50, maybe 75 people to band together and leave this church for the sake of establishing a new church where we believe one is needed. That doesn't make any sense if there is no resurrection. But Christ has been raised. And we too will one day experience resurrection. And we will dwell forever with the Lord. So, you see, when we consider the biblical meaning of life, the Great Commission, the strategy of Paul, and the implications of the resurrection how can we not plant churches? How can we not take church planting seriously? And that brings us to something else to consider. Number five, church planting. Church planting and 
strategic planning. The elders of Calvary Bible Church believe God is glorified when church leaders engage in strategic planning. In fact, we believe God is the ultimate strategic planner. He had a plan established in all of its details and all of the timelines before he created the world. Now that's planning. What that means in practical terms is that we spend a significant amount of time considering what God wants us to do as a church and we make plans for how to accomplish it. And very practically, here's the question I ask at least once a year for a significant period of time. And that is this, Lord, what is it that your word tells us you want us to do that we're not doing? Because we need to do it. Or what are we not doing? What, what are we doing that needs to stop? Or what are we doing that you want us to do that we're just not doing well? Those kinds of questions always lead us back to the Bible, always lead to self-evaluation for us as leaders and for the ministry of this church. And after asking and answering those questions, which we're going to be doing again this summer, <clears throat> we start forming plans. Now, to be clear, we never claim that God has given us a plan. I mean, unless it's on the pages of Scripture. But in terms of how to apply the things that he's commanded us, God doesn't tell us, go to Mansfield. <laughs> we will never say that God told us to plant a church in North Fort Worth. Rather, we take the explicit teachings and implicit principles and promises of God's word and we apply them as best we can in the most practical ways we can. It's fallible. It's dependent. We call it, we always refer to this as our fallible dependent plan. Whatever, whatever thing is coming up next, this is our fallible dependent plan. It's fallible because it was developed by sinners like me. And it's dependent because all of our plans are dependent on the Lord. And he can stop it whenever he wants. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build and apart from me, he says, Jesus says, you can do how much? Nothing. Nothing. So the plan that we're laying out for our next church plant, we believe, is biblical. But it is also a plan that is fallible. We will make adjustments along the way. We may tap the brakes and slow down. Um, we may make changes here and there. It's fallible. And it's absolutely dependent on the Lord for its success. It's as dependent upon the Lord for success as my salvation was dependent upon the Lord for success. He must do it. But we must labor. And that is why we need to engage in much prayer. And we want to call you to much prayer. And we'll more and more. Now to be specific... After two years of planning, discussing, evaluating, studying, dreaming, and planning, we are ready to announce that in approximately one year from now, we intend to plant, drum roll please, not really, we intend to plant Christ Fellowship Bible Church. Christ Fellowship Bible Church. Our hope is to locate this church just outside of Fort Worth 
north of the 820 loop and west of I-35. More specifically, we're looking to plant somewhere in the range between Eagle Mountain Lake and Saginaw, up in that north by northwest area, growing very rapidly up there. It's not far from here. It's not as far as Mansfield, but the population growth up there, as you'll see, uh, we believe warrants it. If the Lord continues to bless our plans, we intend to launch in 12 or 13 months from now. Now, I know you probably have a lot of questions that immediately come to mind, and that's why we've designated next Sunday morning during the Sunday school hour. We'll add more chairs if we need to. But we want to open this up and explain as many details as we think we are confident enough to explain and answer as many questions as we can explain. So next week, June 23rd, uh, we're having an informational meeting for our church plant. What I can tell you today is that Keith Christensen is going to be the preaching elder, the preaching pastor of that church, Lord willing. And what I mean by that is in our fallible dependent plan, he is obviously the man for the job, and he will be the man for the job unless the Lord does something else. Um, and secondly, Matt Scheffler will be his fellow elder. And so the Christensen family and the Scheffler family are the first ones out in terms of our announcing who is going. A few other families have indicated their desire to go, and, uh, and we're going to open the door soon for more of you to express in a more formal way your desire to be a part of that church plant. And then for those of us who will be, I shouldn't say left behind, should I? <laughs> I said dispensation earlier, I might as well just say left behind. There is one more thing to consider, church planning and spiritual health. Okay, so all eyes up here again. I believe, not only because I've heard this from other people, but because now we've experienced it ourselves that no church can afford not to send away some of its best people. And that's hard to do. But no church, I think, can afford to just become stagnant. And ours doesn't become stagnant, partly because we keep sending some of our best men and women and children, and single men and women to leave, to take God's work elsewhere. I want to assure you that Chris and I will be among those who stay. <laughs> Although she has threatened to become part of the new church plant. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. And, <laughs> but I have requested that she consider staying. Anyway. Also, Rod, uh, when, when I approached Rod about becoming an elder here, this is what I said, Rod, we want you to consider becoming an elder at Calvary Bible Church. He's been here for a couple of years, won everyone's trust, uh, obvious shepherd, 
And if you're willing to start the process, I'm willing to start the process. And he said, yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready, I'm in. I said, okay, but one thing. If you commit to doing this, you have to also commit to staying. <laughs> you have to stay. You can't go on the church plant. And he said, praise the Lord. We've been praying about that. There's our answer. <laughs> Rod is staying. Russ is staying. Jason is staying. Um, their presence here is critical so that we can maintain stability in the mother church, in, in this church planting church. So as we think of sending dear friends away, I want you to be encouraged by the fact that the elders believe with all of our hearts that this is going to be good, not just for them, but for us, for this church. Why? Because it forces us to take risks and to trust. We're not trusting God if we don't take risks. And this is a significant risk. And those of you who have been around here for more than 10 or 15 years, you know what a risk this is. Be good for us, because we will have to depend upon the Lord, and so will they. It will protect us from stagnation. It will keep us from becoming ingrown. You know why? Because who takes over uh, our student ministry when Keith is gone? Um, who takes over the boys' Sunday school class when Keith is gone? Who's going to fill all the voids that Katie will leave behind? And Matt and Emily and the others who will go. You know what it means? It means we're going to have to step up. And those of you who have been hitchhiking, getting a free ride, it's time to make a commitment. It's time to get busy. We're going to need your help. It will also inspire leadership training. We're working on a plan that's just breathtaking. Plan for training leaders and plan for training future elders in this church. I am so excited about it, and I can't say a word about it right now, except that we've got to train leaders. Listen, we've, unlike so many churches, we've had so many men that we could draw from. Oh, look, if we lose an elder or two, we've we got plenty of other guys. It's not going to be like that anymore. I mean, we've got lots of men, but these men need to be trained. And we've got to be more serious about that. Not just coming for Bible study, but for serious training. That's going to be good for us. It's going to be good for our homes. It's going to be good for our marriages. It's going to be good for our children. It inspires leadership training. Fourth, it will demand greater exercise of spiritual gifts. Some of you are going to finally figure out what your spiritual gift is <laughs> because one of the leaders is going to grab you and say, get in there and do it now. And you say, I've never done that before. It doesn't matter. Do it. And you're going to go in and go, huh, I like this. Other people are affirming this. I didn't know I could do this. That's how I ended up being a preacher. I didn't know until somebody said, get up there now and do it. Um, and it will motivate us to live in deeper community and develop new friendships that we haven't had before. That will be good for us. And I suspect, and I really want to hear from you, what other benefits you think this is going to bring to Calvary Bible Church. Uh, I've told you this before, and I'll tell you again. 
my focus now is not primarily on getting the church plant going. That is, it's got all kinds of inertia. It's just sometimes I got to pull the reins back a little bit, and I love it that way. It's the way it should be. We're still one church, okay? Oh, this is so important for me to say. We are Calvary Bible Church. We are not two different churches and will not be until that day when we send them out. We are one body. We will not be this click and that click. We will do things to help us not be this church and that church meeting together on Sunday morning. And you have to help us. That means you've got to get involved in other people's lives other than merely the people you love to be with. Um, one time after preaching on that very topic, I said, go out today and find the person that you think you're most least likely to invite to dinner and invite them to dinner. And that was a disaster because <laughs> all kinds of people got invited to dinner and they were so insulted. And... <laughs> but you get the spirit of that. <laughs> to introduce yourself to people and draw them into your life. Invite them to have lunch with you or dinner. Or... This is gonna, we're going to have to. And it'll be good for us. It'll be nothing like the drastic nature of Jew and Gentiles meeting together for the first time in Antioch. It'll be easy compared to that. Let's stop being selfish. But let's maybe, can I, you're not going to throw me out if I say this. Maybe, maybe this next time around, join a different small group. Not because you're mad at the old one, but because you take this seriously. You want to be part of another group of people that you don't know, and it's going to be really uncomfortable. How about leaving the church and moving somewhere else? That's uncomfortable. You changing small groups? Pfft, get over it. Just do it. It'll be good for you, and it'll be good for the church. Um, so, I've run out of notes, but not run out of words. I love it when the Lord does these things, and I hate it when the Lord does these things. It's bittersweet, but it's time. It's time. We're going to spend the next year preparing for this, and you're going to help us if you're a part of Calvary Bible Church. And I really want you to be here next Sunday morning. It's going to be a really significant morning, lots of information, and we're having significant meetings this week to make sure all of that is, is, in is prepared and accurate as best we can. And so you'll want to be here. Now, let's change gears for a second. This will be very, very short. Two things. Number one, Damon and Jen Cup come home from Uganda this week. And you know what? It's going to be wonderful. And it's going to be hard for them. Very, very hard. Uh, seven years on the mission field is good reason for them to come home. And we bless them for the reasons they're coming home. And, um, and it'll be a permanent arrangement. Damon is a leader. Uh, we ordained him to gospel ministry before he left. And he will come back as ordained for gospel ministry. Who knows what the Lord is going to do with Damon? No pressure. Tell Damon no pressure. Damon, if you're listening, no pressure. Um, they haven't left Uganda yet. And so um, we really want to bless them when they get home. Not overwhelm them, but bless them. And so be aware of that coming up. Uh, also, our new office building, we need to get that done. 
preferably before the church plant. It shouldn't take us a year. It's, uh, we've asked for $75,000 to cap off the funding for this. Uh, if you're new here, we do everything debt-free. We've never gone into debt for anything at Calvary Bible Church. We've raised $46,800 of that $75,000. We have $28,000 left. One of you just retire that this week. That would be great. Um, but don't count on that. Uh, we need to work together to get this finished. Let's close with prayer. Lord, these are marvelous things, and they are too big for us. God, be merciful to us. God, be gracious, as you have been gracious in the past. Oh, Father, we've, we've seen your past grace. Help us to trust you for your promises of future grace. Do something marvelous with this church plan. Do something fantastic in our little church. Make us stronger. Make us love Jesus more. Like, make us more dependent upon him. Build relationships here that, that need to be built fresh. Restore relationships that may have been broken. Shake us up. Reveal what's on the inside so that we can deal with it and become more like Christ. And in all things, Father, we pray that the excellencies of Christ would be proclaimed in all of this, in all things, to the glory of God and the joy of all people. We pray this for your glory and for our own joy. Amen. Amen.